The Midwest Crime Files is a true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss heinous crimes and how they're committed. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the Midwest Crime Files. I'm your host, Gina. And I'm Chris. And we're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that changed them forever. This week's story brings us to Alton slash Jerseyville, Illinois. So for those of you who are not from this area, it's pretty close to where Chris and I live. Yep, about an hour away. And this was a listener recommendation, kind of the theme for the whole season. I would say out of the 20 regular episodes, probably 16 of them this season were viewer recommendations. And most of the Patreon episodes were also viewer recommendations. Or should I say listener, I guess. You guys are the ones that keep us in business. Sorry about that. So this week's story is called The Monster of Jerseyville, The Murder of Bonnie Woodward. When Bonnie Woodward's 17-year-old stepdaughter disappeared in the summer of 2010, Bonnie was determined to ensure the girl's safety. Her attempts to protect her stepdaughter would ultimately lead to her disappearance. Bonnie Woodward left work at Eunice Smith Nursing Home on June 25, 2010. When she failed to return home by the following morning, her boyfriend reported her missing. The truth about Bonnie's disappearance shocked everybody in the Alton, Illinois community, but it would take a long time before that truth was revealed. Is this the one that we were watching? Yeah. The episode, like she was in a truck or something? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So Chris has a little bit of a sneak peek on this one. He won't remember much. I don't don't remember. Uh, The only thing I remember is them dramatically showing that truck like over and over and over. Right. Bonnie Louise Gray was born on June 27, 1962 in Wood River. Bonnie would have two children, Joseph and Jennifer, and she basically raised her two children as a single mother. She became a nurse to support her children and was working at Eunice Smith Nursing Home, and she actually worked at the nursing home for 27 years. At the same nursing home? Yes. That's a long time to be a nursing home nurse. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So props to Bonnie, because that's a hard job. She was a dedicated mother, sister, daughter, aunt, and caregiver. She married John Douglas Woodward in 1998. When she married her husband, she became a stepmother to his two children, Those who were close to Bonnie described her as an excellent and dedicated mother who treated her stepchildren the same as her children. It was kind of like us. Like when we got married, my kids and your kids became our kids. Right. There was no real distinction. Right. Just two years after she married John, though, he died suddenly and very tragically on July 24th, 2000. His cause of death is reported as a cerebral hemorrhage, meaning he had a massive brain bleed. So I don't know if he like burst an aneurysm. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. But just like out of nowhere. Damn, that's that's a, that's a shitty way to go. Yeah, and after only two years, like, oh. After their father's death, the children were placed in Bonnie's care. So I'm assuming their mother was not around. Right. 
and Bonnie adopted them. She was now a single mother of four children, including her stepdaughter, Heather. Heather was eight years old at the time of her father's death, and so she grew up with Bonnie as her mom. Bonnie was described as responsible and organized. She believed in raising responsible children. She expected her children to follow the rules and do their chores. When Heather became a teenager, she started to rebel. Well, that's pretty common. Um, she didn't like Bonnie's rules. I don't think any kid likes any parent's rules. No, especially not as a teenager. And she just wanted to come and do, go and do what she wanted to do. You know, and I'm sure there were several, you're not my mom conversations. And to that, I would be like, go fuck yourself. I am your mom. It says so on this piece of paper. Right. She resented her stepmother and the rules that she enforced in her home. And this led Heather to leave home at 17 seeking freedom so now we have a runaway which i never unless it was like an abuse situation i never understand 17 year olds that run away just wait a year right like you're so close to being an adult and being able to do whatever the hell you want now abuse that kind of thing is totally different yeah in no but i understand like it but i can kind of see where they're like well i'm 17 i'm gonna be 18 soon fuck this i'm you know out and I stopped yeah, myself. Yeah, they have to pay their own bills. <laughs> and I stopped myself. I was going to start tra- singing Runaway Train. Oh, Jesus. But then I remembered that that's an actual other case that we did. So. Yeah. <laughs> On June 10th, 2010, Heather left Bonnie's home becoming in a runaway. She went to live with her teacher. So this is where it starts to get kind of funny. Is it a male or female teacher? Female. Not as bad, I don't think. So she had allegedly told her teacher that she was victim of an extremely abusive home life. Now, we were not in Bonnie's home, so we cannot sit here and say, yes, she was abused or no, she wasn't. But everybody who knew Bonnie um, seems to suggest that there was no way Bonnie was abusive. She just, Heather just didn't want to follow the rules, plain and simple. So, I mean... It seems unlikely that Bonnie was abusing Heather. Right. But Heather, you know, nonetheless, this is what she told her teacher, and and her teacher was very sympathetic. I just don't know why the teacher didn't go to the police with it, you know, instantly. Right. And be like, oh, yeah, you're an abusive relationship. Sure, come live with me instead of, hey, let's go talk to the police, and I'll walk you, you know, and I'll be your guiding hand through that process. Right. So when police came looking for Heather on June 17th, the teacher actually said that she didn't know where Heather was. Yes, Heather had been there, but Heather had left. And she claimed to not know anything about where she was, and she refused to cooperate in the investigation. That's very shady. shady I mean, presumably she thought she was trying to protect a child. But you're a teacher. You're a mandated reporter. Right. And it, like, it just didn't make sense. What year was this again? I'm sorry. This was in 2010. So not yeah. that terribly long ago. Yeah. And, man, you know, mandated reporter laws were definitely on the books by then. Right. You know, and you know, as a teacher that, you know, this is one of those, if I see something, I have to say something. Right. Kind of situations. Yeah. So even when she was facing charges for harboring a runaway, she still refused to cooperate. 
fuck that. No, guys, this is where she's at, is exactly what would be the next words out of my mouth. Right. Bonnie was genuinely upset about her daughter's disappearance, and she was concerned for Heather's safety. She was desperate to find her, and she really just wanted to make sure that Heather was okay. Bonnie worked her shift at Eunice Smith Nursing Home on June 25th, 2010. Immediately following her shift, co-workers saw Bonnie talking with a man in a car. According to reports, the conversation appeared amicable with no indications that there was something suspicious going on. Bonnie left her truck with the driver's side door unlocked and the window down in the parking lot of the nursing home and left with the man. So everybody who knew her said like her truck was her prized possession. So if she left it unlocked with the window down, she wasn't planning on being gone very long. Right. I mean, if that's the case, then it's most likely a five minute conversation someplace and then I'm coming back. Right. Bonnie's boyfriend initially believed that Bonnie may have gone out for drinks after her shift with coworkers because, you know, sometimes she did that. And so he just went to sleep and he initially didn't like freak out too much that she wasn't home. But when Bonnie still wasn't home by the next morning, her boyfriend called the police and reported her missing. She also had failed to show up for work, something she had never done in 27 years of service to the nursing home. That's amazing to think that you went 27 years. Well, I guess it's not, you know, because like normal people don't do a no call, no show. Yeah. You know, but 27 years to mean that she had never even not shown up. Right. Like she had never missed a day. I don't know if that's. I don't know if that would be the case. Or not, but. but yeah, she had never, ever not shown up for work. Her colleagues realized her truck was still parked in the parking lot, and so they notified police. Police found no indications of where Bonnie was, and upon inspecting her vehicle, they found no, you know, no clues, no hints, nothing. Yeah, I mean, there was no, like, forced, you know, exit of the vehicle or anything like that, so. Right. Police immediately realized that both 47-year-old Bonnie and her teenage stepdaughter went missing within three weeks of each other. Now, the chances of that happening by coincidence are pretty slim. So they truly believed that this was not a coincidence, that somehow these two disappearances were connected. Perhaps if they could find Heather, they would find Bonnie. Police also had to consider, however, the possibility that Bonnie left on her own. So anytime an adult disappears, we have to talk about that because it is not illegal for adults to disappear on their own volition. And that's, I don't know, that's where my mind kind of gets like skewed with that whole law that, you know, like I understand that adults can't run away, you know, they can't, or they can run away whenever they feel like it. Right. But if a person just disappears like this, you know, where they're on a normal schedule. Nobody knows anything, like, stuff like that. And I'm just trying to figure out, like, God, guys, like, couldn't we make an, like, isn't there some ways to make exceptions to the rule? Well, and that's where the police had to think, like, is this somebody that would have disappeared on her own? Her coworker said, absolutely not. She's worked here 27 years. She's just not going to just up and leave and leave her truck here. Right. Made no sense. 
her boyfriend said, no, there's no way. And she was a dedicated mother. In fact, she had a special needs child at home that she cared for. And there's no way she would have ever just left him. No way. Not right. going to happen. On July 3rd, one day after her 18th birthday, Heather Woodward walked into the Alton Public Library and identified herself as a missing person. One day after her 18th birthday. No, then it's technically then you're not a missing, you know. Well, she was still a missing person, but she's no longer a missing youth. Police brought Heather in for questioning. Heather may have been 18, but during this interview, she behaved like a very small child during this entire interview. She was crying she was clutching a teddy bear like you would imagine like maybe an eight-year-old to do and she's 18 yeah i remember that from the documentary she looked very she looked very weird yeah and like she very like childish carrying her, on like like a like and like yes. and yeah like gina said like she was carrying on like an eight-year-old right you know blubbering with their words not able to make you know coherent sentences or you know complete sentences and stuff like that Right. It just didn't make any sense. Police questioned her about her whereabouts over the previous few weeks, and Heather told them where she had been. She said on June 17th, she went to live with Roger and Monica Carroll. Most sources say that Heather became acquainted with Roger and Monica through church. However, I did find at least one source that said that the teacher Heather initially was staying with was good friends with the Carroll family and had suggested that Heather go there. So I'm not 100% sure. Right. And then yet another source said that Heather was dating the Carroll's son, Nathan Carroll. But I only found that in one source. So I don't know if there's any credible evidence for any of that. So... How she ended up with Roger and Monica is up for debate. It seems like most of the sources do agree that they met through church, but it's possible she was dating Nathan Carroll. It's also possible that the teacher had suggested she go there, almost like bouncing from safe house to safe house. Right. Um, Heather denied knowing what happened to Bonnie, but she said that she thought maybe Bonnie had voluntarily disappeared in order to convince Heather to come home. How the fuck would that make you come home? Yeah, I don't like, know. That's, you disappeared, so I'm going to just disappear too. And not tell you where I'm going. And hopefully you find me? Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of weird. She didn't make a lot of sense, though. Heather said that Bonnie could be mean sometimes. But Bonnie's family adamantly denies that allegation. Those who knew Bonnie said she was funny, loving, was an amazing person with a huge heart. And actually, I was reading some posts on one of the sites dedicated to finding her before she was found. And like one of her nieces was telling a story about how like she walked into a room and just like let a big fart rip just to make everybody laugh. Jesus. Just, she was just like funny. Sounds like some shit I would do. Yeah, kind of does. Um, so, I mean, it just didn't, it didn't fit with anybody else's narrative of who Bonnie was other than Heather. 
Um, her family said that if you were hungry, she would feed you. She would help you any way that she could. She had a generous spirit. And that was just so different from how Heather described her stepmother. Heather was an angsty teenager who didn't want to follow rules. And she certainly would not be the first teenager to exaggerate a home life situation. Right. We've seen numerous, numerous exaggerations on this podcast so far. Right. Investigators found fingerprints on the outside of Bonnie's truck. I mean, this could be nothing. These could be Bonnie's prints. These could be any person who happened to have touched her vehicle. Right. But you got to look at all of it avenues at this point, you know? Right. So they decided to go ahead and collect them and have them on file. When they learned that Heather had been staying with Roger and Monica Carroll, they brought the two in for questioning. Roger was very cooperative. He denied knowing anything about Bonnie's disappearance. Monica provided no helpful information either, except to say that her family was visiting relatives out of town at the time that Bonnie went missing. So she's alibying her family. Right. Time went on. Bonnie remained missing. There was no bank activity. And that included cashing of her paycheck, which Bonnie always did right after payday, right after she got off work. The first thing she always did was go to the bank and cash her check. So... You know, there was nothing that suggested that she was out there on her own voluntarily. There was no social media activity. There was no cell phone activity. And she made no contact with her family. Some people still thought that maybe Bonnie had went on her own. But those who knew her best knew that something was very wrong. The main thing that plays on that is the bank activity. I mean, yeah, even if I decided today to up and leave, I'm still going to have to pay you know, for my gas and food and shit. You would at least see a big deposit, like a big withdrawal, withdraw. rather. You know, like you if know, I suddenly- even if you wanted to use cash to avoid somebody finding where you were, right? You, you would know. still have to withdraw that money, right? Um, so it just it didn't make sense. Numerous leads were followed up on, and actually, they even searched the Carroll's property, but they came up empty. Nobody knew what happened to Bonnie, and her case went cold. Days turned into months, months turned into years, and Bonnie remained missing as her family desperately sought answers. Not knowing the whereabouts of your family member is a special kind of torture. One can't grieve a loss or move on because there is this small sliver of hope, but as time goes by, that hope fades and the realization that that missing person is never coming home becomes clear. However, when they're still missing, you can't have a proper funeral. You can't have a a burial. Right. You can have, you know, a service, but it's just not the same. I was thinking about that. I wonder how long it had they have to wait for like any kind of life insurances or stuff like that to be able to pay out. So for my uncle, it was seven years. Seven years? Yes. And then he was declared legally dead, even though his remains have never been found. Right. So, you know, it's just, I saw the way that it tortured my grandmother, who was my uncle's sister. This is my great uncle. Um, it's just a special kind of torture. You know, you can't really move on. 
right? You can have all the memorial services and stuff like that and vigils that you want, but until you have that final closure of either having that person in your arms or, you know, putting a body or ashes in the ground. Right. It just, it's not something I would wish on anybody ever. Um, Bonnie's family never gave up hope. They actually created a Facebook page dedicated to finding Bonnie. Eight years later, in April of 2018, police were notified that Roger Carroll had been arrested after a domestic dispute. This man had no history of any kind of criminal behavior, by the way. Right. So this would be like his first arrest, as far as I know, in his entire life. Roger viciously assaulted his wife, trapped her in a room of their Jerseyville home. He assaulted her by punching her, pushing her down, and using a taser on her several times. Jesus Christ, for a man that's never had any kind of right. criminal activity, like he escalated yes. tenfold. Yes. It was a brutal attack, and according to Monica... Roger told her that he, quote, was a monster, end quote. She went on to say, quote, he told me he would kill for me. He told me he used to be able to control his anger, but not anymore, end quote. I wonder why he was unable to control his anger now. Right. Following the arrest of Roger for the brutal attack on his wife, police decided they would question Monica and Monica and Roger's son, Nathan, again. Perhaps now that Roger had committed such a heinous act on them, you know, maybe they would be more willing to tell them if they knew anything. Right. So they were hoping they would be more more forthcoming, and they certainly were more forthcoming. They did know more, a lot more. Nathan, now in his 20s, was no longer a scared 16-year-old boy protecting his father and he told police everything sucks that it took that long, but I'm glad you did. Nathan said that his family did go to see their extended family in Goreville, Illinois, which is like really far South. If you guys don't know, yeah, it's down by Marion. Um, however, after Roger and Heather took a long walk by themselves, shady, I mean, you got to remember, she's 17. He's like 30s, 40s, at right. least 40s, I would think. Um, he said after they took this long walk by themselves, Roger told Nathan that the two of them had to leave early. On the drive back to Jerseyville, Roger explained that Bonnie was, quote, a bad person. She needed to be taken care of, end quote. Nathan said that instead of going home, they drove to Alton, Illinois, and they drove past the nursing home where Bonnie worked. And upon seeing her truck, Roger said, quote, good, she's working today, end quote. He allegedly knew Bonnie's schedule because Heather gave it to him. When Bonnie exited the building after her shift, Roger was there waiting for her. Nathan was back at the Jerseyville house. He approached the woman and explained that he knew where Heather was. He told her that Heather was willing to talk to Bonnie, but Bonnie had to come with him right now. 
Bonnie was eager to speak to her daughter and willingly got in the car. That's some shady shit. Ain't it? Like, granted, like, everything he's doing right now is shady, but to lure her in by saying, oh, I, I know where she is and she wants to talk to you, but only if you come this way. Right. You know, Bonnie was eager to to see her daughter, and she must have been really relieved and excited, thinking that this, you know, nightmare of having a missing child was almost over. But unfortunately, it was all a trap. Nathan said upon returning to the family's Jerseyville home, his father had left with a gun. And when his father returned soon after, he heard gunshots. Jesus. He said he saw Bonnie's lifeless body lying on the ground, still in her scrubs from her job. At that time, his father demanded that Nathan help him build a burn pit in which Bonnie's body would be placed and cremated. Ugh. God, it makes uh, me nauseous to think about involving your 16-year-old child in that. But and then it also like it bothers me because people always we've all we've seen a bunch of times where oh we'll just burn the body like they don't realize how hot you have to get a body to cremate it right and even then like there's not it's not like it's just gone like there's still pieces left like jesus christ just wait because roger was decently intelligent nathan testified that his father burned her remains over and over over a course of several days until there was very little remains left. At that point, the boy said his father forced him to help as he scooped up all of the remains from the burn pit and dumped them in the creek. Jesus. So he was a little smarter than your average criminal. Yeah. Throwing what was left of Bonnie's body into the water. Police searched the Jerseyville property once again. They'd already searched it once years ago and didn't find anything. This time with Nathan's assistance, the spot where Nathan said Bonnie was shot was thoroughly searched after eight years. So this time with Nathan's help, police found a nine millimeter projectile and shell casing in the ground. Now, when I say in the ground, I mean in the ground. This is eight years later, so they had to dig a little bit. Right. So it wasn't deep in the ground, but it was in the ground nonetheless. Right. Nathan showed them the gun, one of several in the Carroll home, and identified it as the one used to kill Bonnie. I just want to know how, like, if that bullet would be classified as, like, circumstantial, though. Probably. Because you can't like, prove. You can't prove that that's the, the one that, like, the bullet that was shot at her. I mean, yeah, it's in a suspicious location close to the house and all that good stuff. But if they're, I mean, if they own guns, I'm I'm presuming it's kind of like they own some land. They shoot weapons all the time. So you can't just say that, oh, hey, that this wasn't just around from previous. Right. The only thing that kind of tied it was Nathan showed them the gun and then the nine millimeter projectile matched the gun that Nathan showed him. So it kind of helped like to, to back his story. It's still circumstantial, but it helps to back his story. Um, in the area where the burn pile was, police found several bone fragments 
and a key. So see, even though he did everything a little better than most people do who commit murders and try to burn bodies, he still didn't burn everything and they found some bone right. fragments. And they didn't pick it, pick, any, pick it all up. Right. The key and bone fragments could not be positively identified, however, as belonging to Bonnie. They weren't saying that it was not Bonnie, but they were too degraded to be a positive identification. Oh, yeah. I mean, once you burn bone, like a body for that long, like, especially if it was like four or five days of just constant heat, like you're going to just like totally destroy. Well, any and then it sat there for eight years. Right. I mean, so, you know, they couldn't, and could they, they couldn't positively identify the key either. Could they positively, could they identify the bone fragments as human bone though? Or I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I know that it could not be positively connected to Bonnie with 100% certainty, but police did believe that this was the only remains of Bonnie Woodward. Nathan said that his father gave him Bonnie's cell phone, told him to smash it. He admitted to following his father's directions, smashing the phone and putting it in the fire. One of Bonnie's co-workers was able to positively identify Roger Carroll as the man that Bonnie was talking to in the parking lot after work. His fingerprints were found on her truck. Those fingerprints, they matched yeah. Roger Carroll. And there's Carroll. no reason for his fingerprints to be on that truck. No. Roger Carroll denied being in Alton that day or even being in or near Bonnie Woodward's vehicle, which was obviously a lie. On April 12, 2018, Roger Carroll was charged with the murder of Bonnie Woodward. Monica and Nathan were both granted immunity in exchange for their testimony. Monica was able to confirm that Roger and Nathan left Goreville early and the existence of a huge fire pit on her property the day that she and Heather returned from Goreville. She denied knowing anything about the murder, though. Roger was also charged with unlawful restraint and domestic battery with bodily harm for his attack on his wife. Monica promptly filed for divorce. Good for her. Roger Carroll went on trial in 2020. The witnesses for the prosecution included his estranged wife, son, and Heather Woodward herself. Monica testified that her soon-to-be ex-husband was abusive and had threatened to kill her. She gave testimony regarding her attack and comments Roger made about being a monster. Monica's mother testified that while visiting her Goreville home, Roger and Heather took an hour-long walk alone together. Upon returning from this walk, he, Roger promptly took Nathan and left. So Nathan's grandmother is supporting Nathan's story. So what do you think happened on that walk? I'm sure they coerced. Like, like there was collusion. Do you think he was sleeping with her? There's a really strong possibility of that. There's so many unanswered questions that I just need answers to. Like at the re the whole fact that she wasn't tried herself, you know, like we have already we already see that there's probable cause for her to want her mom gone, you know, and then they take this long hour walk together. So and then instantly come back and then he takes off and that's when the murder happens. So if she turned 18 July 2nd, she ran away like three weeks before her 18th birthday. Right. 
Like, that's just dumb. It just doesn't make any sense. The no, it doesn't. The defense attacked Monica Carroll's testimony, citing that Monica had a really good reason to lie. Monica and Roger were in the midst of a divorce, and if Roger was sent to prison, Monica would be granted all their assets, which totaled $800,000. So, okay. Yeah. That's maybe a reasonable reason to, you know, a reasonable motive to lie, maybe. The prosecutor objected, and the judge barred the defense from continuing this line of questioning. Heather Woodward testified. She said she was living with Bonnie, but was unhappy with the situation. She said she left to live with a teacher, but Roger Carroll asked her to come live with him until she turned 18 a few weeks later. Again, I don't understand. It just has creeper vibes all over. It really does. Heather said she knew him from church and agreed to go. Upon arriving at the Carroll home, Roger instructed her not to tell police where she had been, made her follow his rules, and instructed her not to use her cell phone or the computer. She denied knowing anything about Bonnie's death. And so basically she got up there and said that Roger was super controlling of her. Right. You know, but what I will say is if this was supposedly a safe house, I mean, you would want to... Like, if it was somebody running from a domestic violence partner, you don't want to use those kind of things because you don't want them to find you. Right. But Heather kind of made it sound like it was more of a controlling thing. I don't know where the truth lies. Nathan Carroll testified as the star witness against his father. He testified that his father told him that Bonnie was mean, aggressive, and abusive towards Heather, and that is why she needed to die. He said that his father told him Bonnie, quote, needed to go away and never come back, end quote. He testified that he tried to talk to his father out of this, but was unsuccessful. Nathan said that his father had become aware of Bonnie's work schedule through questioning Heather about Bonnie's normal routine. He returned home, waited for the woman to get off work, and left with a loaded gun. Nathan repeated his story as told earlier to police. He saw Bonnie lying on the ground lifeless. His father used a tractor to move the woman to the burn pit with Nathan's assistance. Nathan smashed her cell phone and added it to the fire. Like, I don't get why you would <laughs> add your son to this shit. I don't know. Like, none of this, like, none of the murder and cover-up needed a second person. The only thing I can think of is if he thought that nobody in his family would turn him in because they would want to protect his son. That's the only thing I can think of. Like, Hey, if you go and tell you're going to be part of it. Yeah. But it, from what it sounds like, the only people that actually knew what happened was him and his son. Apparently, you know, cause like his wife, like his wife said, Hey, you know, yeah, I came home later and there was a burn pit going, but I don't, I didn't remember anything. I think Heather knew. Oh, I think she did too. But, but I'm just going off of by like what testimony was, you know. Right. After burning her remains for several days, Nathan and his father scooped up what was left of her in the tractor and dumped her in the creek nearby. 
Nathan admitted lying when police originally questioned him, citing a need to protect his father. Nathan said that family members were threatening him for testifying against his father. So I guess once he decided to testify and Roger was arrested, like, I'm assuming Roger's side of the family, like, went ballistic and was threatening Nathan. How the fuck are you going to go ballistic whenever, like, he's testifying against his father over a murder? Right. Like, I understand that you guys think that, oh, maybe he doesn't, you know, he didn't do it or anything like that. But that's kind of some horse shit right there. You know, like, if your son, if your son, grandson, nephew, whatever you want to call him at this point in time, came up and said, yeah, you know, I help bury a body, you know, get rid of a body or burn a body. Like, son of a bitch. Like, I'm not going to get pissed at you guys. Right. Like, I'm going to be like, okay, well, what do you need from me? Nathan was then asked about his father's past. And one of the things the prosecution asked was, has your dad killed animals before? Nathan said yes, and his father had killed two dogs on the property before. When asked why he may have killed them, the defense objected. And this questioning was completely stopped. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's kind of a bogus line of questioning as well. Like, you can ask me, have I ever killed an animal? And I have to say, yeah, because, you know, I hunt. You know, and this is a gentleman that owned land, and I'm sure they were probably, like, stray dogs. Well, but, either you know, that or they could have been... Like, it could have been a situation where I know one of my friends that lives on a farm, like, they don't take their dog to the vet when it's dying. They just euthanize it themselves. Right. But I'm, I think in this case, it was more of a stray dogs that, you know, like, there was dogs on this property kind of situation. Yeah. Which, no, I'm not going to instantly shoot them. But if they start, keep coming around and they're aggressive and shit like that, yeah, I'm going to shoot them. Right. The defense attacked Nathan's testimony on cross-examination, suggesting that his account of the murder was a convenient recovered memory after his father and mother's marriage deteriorated. Basically, they were saying, like, you didn't come up with this until you were mad at your dad. And then all of a sudden, now you remember this. And Nathan responded by saying, quote, I spent eight years trying not to think about this trying to go on and be normal and forget it. And in the past two years, my goal is to remember everything I can. And someone will say something, someone will bring up a topic, and then it just unrolls from there. I remember more and more information, and over these past few years, I cannot think about the details all the time. I write it down. It's hard in it meetings and prosecutors and then I still have to try to function so yes my memory does get better as I'm remembering more things and more unravels but after I tell people and I know it's documented I try to forget and it's hard because I think about it on a nightly basis end quote yeah you put that kid through hell right you know and then you're telling them to repress the that hellish memory and now, like, and it, you know, probably eight years later, like, he's probably did a good job of, you know, since he didn't crack before then, he did a good job of coping with it. And now you're trying to have him, like, recall the deepest and darkest thing that he's tried to push out his mind for the last eight years. Right. Like, this kid's, like, God damn, I feel sorry for him. So the defense then asked for a mistrial. And the reason they said that notes that Nathan was referring to 
were not given to the defense in the discovery phase. Because where he said that once things are written down and documented, he tries to forget. Apparently, those notes were not given to the defense. However, the prosecutor clarified that these notes were collected by Nathan's attorney, not the prosecutor. And therefore, the defense didn't have access to them because of attorney-client privilege. Furthermore, the defense had access to Nathan's journals through discovery, and so the request for the mistrial was denied. Coworkers testified that Bonnie's truck remained in the parking lot of the nursing home overnight on June 25, 2010. One coworker was able to identify Roger Carroll as the man seen speaking to Bonnie in the parking lot after her shift. Her family and friends testified that she was a dedicated mother and nurse, and she would not have abandoned her entire family and job of 27 years willingly. Matt Davis, an Illinois State Police forensic anthropologist and expert in human remains, also testified regarding the bone fragments taken from the Jerseyville property. He testified that under examination and testing of DNA, two of the fragments did not belong to Bonnie Woodward. Other fragments were too small and severely burned, so DNA could not be extracted. The expert did testify that these remains were consistent with human remains that were not completely cremated. While not conclusively tied to Bonnie, they could be her remains, but two of the bone fragments were not. That's interesting. Yeah. Those turn out to be other human bones. That's just not... uh... It's not kosher, guys. No, like this this case is not as strong as I want it to be. A research botanist for the United States Department of Agriculture Forest Service testified that he examined samples from a tree located near the burn pile Nathan said was used to cremate Bonnie's remains. He analyzed the rings of the tree, which I think this is so cool, and In the tree sample, he said that he could see, quote, clearly experienced a traumatic event during the wood growth season of 2010, end quote. The damage to the rings from the year of 2010 indicated that there had, in fact, been a fire affecting the growth in the summer months. And so that tree, like, it's so cool to me how a tree just right. keeps that. And they can go back and they can look at those rings and be like, yeah, yep. there was a fire. Yeah, it suffered a traumatic injury. You know, it's crazy. You know, but like, this is why I like forensic files so much. The defense made numerous claims to explain the evidence against Roger. One such claim is that numerous bone fragments were found because the property was an ancient Native American burial ground. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> like, come on, guys. Like, I tried I, to get through that without laughing. Like, I get that you're trying, like, A for effort. Like, you're trying to get, like, I get it. You know, all I can think about is the Simpsons episode where. No. The Friends episode with the dollhouse and Phoebe brings all her toys right. and she, and Monica's like, I don't want a ghost. And she's like, well, you have one because this was house was built on an ancient Indian burial ground. Like, I just. So, and I, and I love how like, oh, yeah, it's ancient Indian burial ground, but the bone fragments are surface level. Right. And not buried. 
They presented an expert who claimed Native Americans sometimes used cremation. However, the prosecution pointed out that a key and button were also found and were inconsistent with this theory. <laughs> Not unless the Native Americans had some some upgraded tech. Right. Like, <laughs> God, I could just see some, like, that dude from the History Channel, like, the ancient aliens, getting a hold of this and being like, so what happened was aliens <laughs> gave these Indians keys and buttons to make them better. Yeah. Like, okay. Like, once again, I give it an A for fucking effort, but an F for fucking... It's laughable. Like, like the what like, happened to Bonnie is not funny, but like, this ridiculousness is funny. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just think it's fun. Like, good God, man. Like, that's that's what that's what we're throwing out there. Right. Like, that's that's how else are you gonna explain human remains on your property? After three and a half hours of deliberation, the jury found Roger Carroll guilty of first degree murder. Additionally, the jury found that Roger was guilty of discharging a firearm causing death, which gave grounds for an enhanced sentence. Roger Carroll, prior to sentencing, immediately appealed the decision, citing ineffective assistance of counsel. He said that the brief testimony regarding him killing dogs was unfairly prejudicial. However, his motion for a new trial was dismissed. Like, I love how it's like, yeah, I didn't get good enough counsel because they thought freaking burial ground. <laughs> like, that's still laughable. Like, and I, we have to re like reiterate, the murder itself was not laughable. This is a horrendous crime. Yes, and we like, have to reiterate because some people get very upset with us. Because we joke about a defense attorney saying that there was it's Indian ridiculousness. Like that's part of the reason why we do this, guys, is like to bring a lighthearted sense of humor to shit that people, you know, like we're not well, making fun of the fucking yeah, we're not making fun of the murder. I'm trying to I'm laughing. Just the ridiculousness of like what defense attorneys come up with. But again, I guess you got to come up with something. So <laughs> there you go. I wonder what like that war room situation was like. Like they're walking around, <laughs> like all the lawyers, with a big poster board, be like, "Okay, we need ideas. Like, right. Give me ideas for a good defense." How do we explain how about, this? How about we go with with it with animal bones? Okay, sounds plausible. Sounds plausible. Animal bone. Animal bones. What else we got? Oh, it's just random. Okay, random. So they Indian were they Indian were probably going to go with with animals until the anthropologist said that they were definitely human remains. I didn't think he said they were. Well, he said they were consistent with human remains. Right. And that's probably where he was like, "Well, we better come up with something a little better." <laughs> and I love that that something a little better is still ridiculous. Indian burial. Like I feel like Steve Harvey. Right. Indian Indian burial <laughs> So, Roger Carroll was sentenced to 40 years for the murder, plus an additional 25 years for discharging the firearm. His total sentence was 65 years in prison. Roger Carroll is set to go to trial in September of 2022 for charges pertaining to the attack on his wife. So, he's not even been to jail for that. Yeah. Um, so, that's going to happen here just in about a minute. 
So was that concurrently or consecutively for the time? Um, I believe that those are consecutive okay. because it's enhanced sentencing. Okay. Monica and Roger are now divorced. Heather Woodward is now an adult and has remained under the radar since she testified against Roger Carroll. I looked online. I think I maybe found her, maybe, but I couldn't say for sure. Um, I, nobody really knows what happened after that. She's never been tried. Well, I would have fucking disappeared. There's no evidence, you know, I would agree. There's no evidence, you know, short of Roger Carroll saying that she conspired, but he still says he's innocent. I mean, there's nobody can prove she knew anything about it. Right. And that's kind of the fucked up situation for him to be, to get her under wraps would be him saying that he's guilty. Right. And he's not going to do that. So whether or not she knew on the Facebook page, there's a lot of people who say she was definitely part of this, that oh. she conspired. And Oh, if this, you know, if this ever happens to me, I'm changing my fucking name and moving out of state. <laughs> like, and we're just, we're going to be David Duchovny and that's my name now. Well, it doesn't seem plausible that she didn't know anything about it. Just I the- think they went on that walk. I don't know if there was any sexual behavior between the two of them, but I think there was definitely a conversation about how poli- to get rid of her. Right. And that like, and that's the thing that points it out to me. Like the greatest factor is that y'all had an hour walk together and then he instantly left. Right. Like, and it wasn't just like an hour walk and they came back and chilled for a little bit. Like he instantly left after that walk. And she didn't apparently question it. Right. Well, and the only thing I can say is maybe she didn't know he was going to go do that. But I guarantee you, she spewed this story of him, of Bonnie being abusive and prompted it. I think she knew what was going to happen. But even if she didn't, she's still responsible. Right. In my opinion. Um, Well, even if the, even if they, even if that walk was nothing more than just a walk, you know, and then just normal talking. Right. The lies that she had, like you said, had stated at this at this point in time. Is his motive. Is his motive. Right. You know, like you gave motive to this man to go murder. So technically, should you be somewhere with that? But he's crazy anyways, though. Like who's going? I almost think they had to be sleeping together. And the reason I say that is who is going to go kill a woman because a 17 year old tells you she's being abused, even though she's three weeks from being 18. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't make much no, sense. I know what you're saying. Keep keep her safe at your house till she turns 18. Why right. go anywhere further with that unless he's just crazy? Right. So what happened on that long walk? Nobody knows. Did Heather conspire with Roger? We don't know. Did Roger take advantage of a young, confused teenage girl? Probably. Did Roger think he was protecting Heather or did he have a more sinister motive? We can really only speculate. Nobody knows. Bonnie was a loving and dedicated mother, sister, girlfriend, aunt, and nurse. Her family and friends continue to grieve their enormous loss every day. While grateful for answers, those who love Bonnie wish they had her remains to give her a proper burial. Yeah, that's shitty. Yeah. It is. She left behind a legacy of love and will be forever missed. This story is crazy. Like, I, when I was researching this story, I was yelling, I don't understand, because I just couldn't figure out 
why? How we got from point A to point B. Right. And the only thing that makes sense to me, it's like a really bad Lifetime movie. Well, I'm sure there's going to be a Lifetime movie made out of it. Heather, Heather had to have something to do with it. It's the only thing that, well, that makes like, sense to me. Like we said, like we said, even if that talk, even if the walk that they had taken for an hour didn't have any communication between them and it was just them talking, the lies that she had been stating, or I'm sorry, not lies, the supposed story that she had been stating at this time was more than enough motivation for him to go do this. There's a picture of Bonnie. She looks familiar to me, but I think it's because she kind of reminds me of my mom. Yeah, a little bit. I think that's why. Yeah. But, you know, it's entirely possible that I may have seen her when I used to go in there a long time ago, work in hospice. Like, it's totally possible that our paths had crossed at some point in time, you know, but. She was a nurse for 27 years at the same nursing home. Yeah. So. This was the sad story of Bonnie Woodward's death and the monster of Jerseyville, Roger Carroll. Yep. Who, like, what the hell, though? Like, how do you go from never being in trouble your she whole did. entire life to murdering somebody and then viciously attacking your wife eight years later? Right. Like, maybe he does have a screw loose. Maybe. I yep. don't know. Something just isn't quite right. Yep. If you guys want to see the pictures or check out my references, head on over to our webpage, www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. Like and follow us on Facebook. And we had a Patreon episode released this week. So if you guys would like access to the new um, Patreon episodes and everything in our vault, make sure you become a Patreon member. If you can do so by as little as you'd like to contribute or as much as you'd like to contribute and um coming up pretty soon we're going to have a really special promotion for all of our patreons so stay tuned for that yeah and i think gina doesn't know this but i think we're whenever the next live we're going to do since we had to cancel on you guys we're sorry about that but it we all (laughs) gina thinks she had the covid and everybody in our family but i think maybe there might be a special uh chip challenge that might be done during our next live. Maybe sort of. I don't know if people have seen that. The Pocky chip challenge. One chip challenge. Oh, Jesus. Oh, He's yeah. going to kill me. I'm going to kill her. All right. But yeah, if you guys. Death by potato chip. <laughs> yep. But if you guys have any stories or anything like that, go ahead. Hit up, uh, hit us up on Facebook and we will see you guys. Do you want to hear an odd coincidence? Sure. The original person that sent me Bonnie's story actually sent me another one this week. And I was like, hey, (laughs) I'll check that out. By the way, your other one's coming up this week. She was very excited. Awesome. All right. We'll we'll see you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.